Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show. Today, we have a repeat guest, a very rare occurrence that is kept for uh, only the most special people. Um, because today, we have Robert Freund back on the show. Robert, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me back. It's awesome to get that repeat invite. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. My favorite legal expert. <laughs> great, great title to hold. I know there's a lot of competition for that. <laughs> uh, I want to dive right in. Um, you know, we'll, we'll give a quick context uh, as to who you are and what you do, but I, I think a lot of it, it, you know, will sort of be explained um, through talking about some of the stories, uh, particularly pertaining to social media and the legalities behind it. But in, in short, how would you describe yourself? Say I'm an advertising lawyer and I help e-commerce brands and anyone involved in selling anything online keep their money. So instead of being involved in litigation and dealing with lawsuits, my goal is to help brands, agencies, and individual creators keep the money that they've earned and, and focus on what they're there to do, which is their business. And then a, a quick recap, in our last episode together, we talked a lot about um, celebrities being sued for using their own photos, which the responses that I got to that were amazing and also scary because just about every influencer has done that at one point or another, whether it be photos that friends have taken or just people they didn't know have taken photographers at events. I've probably done it if you look at my profile, you know, so it, that is a really crazy subject. But, you know, there is some uh, some relief in the sense of people aren't going after they're only going after like, I don't remember who the example was, but like a Rihanna type. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that gets into the issue of publicity rights. The concept is that every person, celebrity or not, has the right to control how their name, image, and likeness is used commercially. So if somebody takes a picture of me and runs it in an ad or posts it on their brand's Instagram page, and they didn't get my permission first, they violated my publicity right. And so the cases that make the headlines involve celebrities because they're kind of easy targets and presumably have deep pockets and will settle for more than maybe somebody else, but, or, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm saying that backwards. They're, they're, they make headlines, well, because they're interesting. Um, but, uh, it's, it's a mistake to think that it's just celebrities that have to worry about that issue because it applies to everybody's celebrity or not, at least in California. Oh, and yeah. it's one of those laws that's, so on the side of the individual, again, at least in, in California's situation, like you don't have to be famous whatsoever. You don't even have to prove that you were damaged at all by someone taking your image. And there's a, a minimum amount of money you're entitled to, plus mandatory attorney's fees, which is a rare thing in the law. Like the default rule is that each side has to pay their own attorney's fees at the end of the case, win or lose. So, you know, even if you mount a successful defense, you have to pay for your attorney at the end of the case. That's pretty much the, that's the default rule and it only changes in some limited circumstances. This is one of those limited circumstances where if you win, 
you get your attorney's fees as the plaintiff, which makes it way more attractive to want to file that lawsuit because it's not complicated to prove. You know, you used my picture in an ad. That's not that complex an idea to wrap your mind around. And if you're a lawyer representing that person, it's like there's a, a much bigger settlement already on the table, at least leverage wise, because there's that attorney's fees hook. So the headlines are about celebrities, but ordinary people bring these kinds of lawsuits all the time. So it, it's um, interesting. When it comes to photography, though, if like if somebody sent me the photo, like they sent it to me with intentions of me posting it, that mm -hmm. pretty much puts me in the clear, right? So that's, that's interesting. So from the photographer's perspective, they're looking at the copyright issue. So when somebody posts a picture of themselves, assuming like, well, I'm in the picture, so I must have the right to do whatever I want with it. That's getting into uh, the issue that's separate from publicity rights, which is who has the copyright in that image. And the, the default position is that whoever hits that shutter button on the camera has the right to the photo, regardless of the subject of the photo. So a sort of extreme example is like, if I handed you my phone to take a picture of me, you have the copyright in that photo and not me, unless we have some kind of agreement. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the, the cases I've posted about, I think the most recent one is Emily Ratajkowski being sued by the paparazzi who took the photo of her that she posted. And she's arguing that uh, the reason she posted it was to make commentary on the fact that paparazzi are following her around everywhere. And so she's trying to say, she's, she's putting forth a sort of fair use defense to why she posted that photograph. And that, that one will be interesting to watch because it seems like she's trying to actually fight it rather than just settle, which is what a lot of these end up doing, which means we don't, you know, we don't get sort of satisfying rulings about who's right when they settle, of course, but it seems so far, at least she's been trying to defend it. So we'll see. That's interesting. I, I wonder, have you heard of the, the most extreme example I've ever heard of that doesn't actually relate to a human. Have you heard the monkey example of the monkey who got the rights to the photo? So there, there's a story, there's a story oh. of uh, somebody told me this when I, I was talking to them about a charity project and they, um, I guess there was a camera, I don't know if it was in the zoo or in the jungle, and a monkey went up to the camera and took a selfie. Um, mm -hmm. The person whose camera it was, uh, you know, assumed that that was his photo because it right. was his camera. Um, and then I forget the animal organization, Peter, something like that. They determined that the monkey actually owned the rights to the, to the likeness and license of, um, the image and the guy lost everything. He lost all like the money he made from the photo, like everything. It's the craziest thing ever. Yeah. I'll have to look that up when we're done with this. Yeah. That's outrageous. <laughs> I know. Because I was, it was a serious question because I was talking about putting a camera in the ocean and I asked, uh -huh. I, I seriously asked the guy that I was talking to, I was like, if a shark comes, does the shark then own the likeness to the video that we're taking? <laughs> like, how do you, do you settle, do you bring the, the shark into court? Like, how does that, yeah, okay. how does that communicate? There, there are some communication barriers there. Um, yeah, there's been a lot written about 
legal rights extended to animals. And there's actually a course I took, uh, one of the electives in law school is called animal law. And it sort of got into that, like books have been written about extending limited legal rights to chimpanzees and related apes and stuff like that. And it's like, you, I mean, they're pretty much at this point, purely intellectual arguments, but it comes up in court from time to time. Like I remember some of the cases we talked about in that book had to do with like SeaWorld keeping whales in captivity and, you know, should you extend some kind of limited personal rights to animals? But the idea of like uh, publicity rights with a monkey, I think that's, that's more of a reach than I've heard of before. So yeah no, I, I i do really like uh personal rights when it comes to like, like there are some animals that some of these uh occur. i i know a great white shark is an example if you put a great white shark in captivity it dies right so of course there should be laws that prevent people from killing great white sharks for entertainment right. sake um right. you know so in terms of, of that i think there's a great point to be made but like you said, when it comes to other things. Like property rights, I think, like, might be. Like the right to vote. I don't yeah. think that whales should have <laughs> the right not. to vote. Personally, somebody's <laughs> probably going to disagree with me, but I don't think whales should have the right to vote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not yet, at least. They're not there yet. Not until they can articulate why they're voting for said candidate. Right. So well, that's more, than, that's more than a lot of people can do right now. So maybe that's too much of the standard. <laughs> maybe, maybe whales should be able to vote. Maybe. Yeah. On second thought, let them I want to talk about uh, a case that you recently posted on your Instagram. Uh, Rihanna got sued for using a song in a Fenty uh, Instagram video. What, what was the context there and, and what happened? Yeah, so Rihanna operates a page about her Fenty brand and she posted basically just like a short video post that was an ad on that page and she used a song from this artist that I had not heard of before. I think a lot of people weren't super familiar with this group and the allegation is that this is not a song that she had the license to use and it's not like she pulled it from a sort of database that already has releases from the artists in there. Like when you use a song that's on TikTok, those are all, you have the license to use songs that are in their library on your TikTok because TikTok has gone through the work of clearing all that for that purpose. And the claim is Rihanna didn't have any kind of rights release like that with respect to the song that's in that Instagram video. And so if that's true, that's a pretty open and shut copyright infringement case because you know a large part of the song was in that video it played throughout the entire video and that's the kind of thing that an artist would expect to be compensated for um, but you know expectation aside it's that would be a clear copyright case if if all of that is true the case is just at the opening stage they filed a complaint rihanna hasn't responded yet so we'll see what happens with that you know her response is coming up in a few weeks, I believe is, is the due date. And I like to keep track of these things and post updates when they happen. So I'll be looking out for that one and, and see how she handles it. You know, it might, it might be one of the vast majority of cases that just sort of settles quietly, or she might maybe the, the way it's framed in the complaint isn't totally accurate and she has some kind of defense to it, but it, it's an interesting issue because 
well, for a lot of reasons, but there is so much commentary out there from people who heard about this case saying, well, this is such amazing publicity for this unknown artist to be in a Rihanna ad. Like, I can't believe they're suing about this. They should be so grateful. And that's, when you think about it, it's like, yeah, that's fair enough. That's massive exposure for somebody that probably no one would be talking about, you know, no offense to that group, but certainly much fewer people would be talking about this who work for Rihanna. But at the same time, you know, if you don't always police your intellectual property rights, then what happens if you do get big and someone else smaller than Rihanna rips you off and you have this track record of just letting people do that, that can become a problem for you. So it's like, it's like the classic, we should reform copyright laws because they're too restrictive kind of situation where you have somebody that you could argue is just out for, wants to get a handout from Rihanna, but on the other side, it's like, well, you know, people should not just expect to take exposure as payment. Right, unless it's previously disclosed, right? Right, yeah. Um, so to come full circle on the monkey, I have, I, I Googled it um, and, the the top search result is the photographer whose camera was used by a monkey to take the selfie won a two-year legal battle against animal rights group over copyright of an image. PETA sued on All behalf right. of the monkey in 2015, seeking financial control of the photographs for the benefit of monkey. Um, so I guess I guess he lost because he had to put up with the case, but he won the case. Yeah, I mean, I hope the monkey can afford PETA's legal fees. I guess they took it pro bono, probably. But <laughs> you got to wonder about the the attorneys working on that. Like, I understand that they they were probably filing that lawsuit just to make a point and sort of like push and see how where we are in the system in terms of even entertaining that kind of thing. But you got to wonder whether it's everybody involved. Time. Yeah, I mean, in the in the context of litigation generally, that's not that's not an insane amount of time, but I wonder about all the staff involved in working on that case. Like, <laughs> what are we doing? Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I, there's some value in exploring where the limits are with respect to new ideas like that, but I think it's probably the right result in the end. But if you're the guy who's getting sued, he doesn't get any of that money back that he had to spend on legal fees. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not great for him. He could potentially, I'd have to see like what happened in the case. I mean, there there are situations where even if it's not provided for in the statute, you can try to get a recovery if it was filed frivolously. And in some copyright cases, you can get awards of attorney's fees. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not, without knowing really what happened there, I'm not sure if that's available to him. That's but it. yeah, I'm sure that that was not that guy's favorite two years. I mean, come on. <laughs> Who would ever expect that? Yeah, that's crazy. That's yeah. something to be careful of when you have monkeys, your camera. <clears throat> Could you now we know. Like, what, uh, think about the flip side of that. Imagine suing the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I don't know how you even serve that guy with papers. He's in the zoo, so it's probably hard to get in there, you know? <laughs> well, totally. Yeah. Totally. But, I mean... That's the opposite, but which inherently means it's not that far off. 
Yeah, I mean, people have sued for much more insane stuff than that because there's there's nobody really checking the door about whether a lawsuit is completely insane at the time you file it. Like, basically, you can present the court clerk with anything and they have to stamp it and, and then you deal with whether it's completely off the wall or not. But people file stuff you wouldn't believe every single day. <laughs> Craziest thing that you've ever seen filed, that you're just like what the hell are these people thinking i've seen a lot of and i i don't want to like criticize the people that much and fortunately like i haven't been in the kind of office ever that would see that much insane stuff but there's i've seen a few where people are like extremely firm believers in the idea of being a sovereign citizen where like you believe that none of the federal laws apply to you. You don't have to pay taxes. Like there's no such thing as the government and so on. And they'll, it, it happens a lot, unfortunately, in situations like home foreclosures or other credit stuff where they'll sue a bank and saying like, you can't do whatever it is that you're trying to do because like the law doesn't apply to me basically. And they're pretty good at like, there's whole communities about this and they're pretty good at just like putting together hundreds and hundreds of pages of what they think supports their case about how, you know, just because they were born here doesn't mean they're subject to the law and all this. So like dealing with that is, I think it's partially intentionally designed to drive you crazy just trying to figure out what they're saying. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that that's probably the outer limit of stuff that I've, personally come across that's all right um, so essentially they think they're god well they they just think that like their interpretation of history means that the law doesn't apply to them and their interpretation of what, what are we doing here yeah i know i know <laughs> i don't have a lot of sympathy for that position obviously um but there's yeah there's people out there that truly believe that stuff and amazing yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've seen people file stuff that's just like loaded with profanity and like telling the judge to do this and that. I've shared a couple of those on my story from time to time because like they make the rounds every once in a while. But uh, somebody had like a, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on the show or not. You, you can say anything. Okay. There's somebody who filed in federal court a notice to fuck this court and everything it stands for. And it was like four or five pages of like telling the judge he's old and dumb and like and all this stuff. And it was like, it's just so much, it's so shockingly funny to see it like formatted as a legal document and like actually filed in all seriousness. I mean, that's somebody who didn't have a lawyer, I, I think, obviously, because Nobody's gonna look at his lawyer. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, I like I like rereading that one from time to time just because it's like it's so insane. That's crazy. Yeah. What are the legalities in terms of profanity in court? Are there any? Or you can just say yeah, I, on the yeah. side. There are rules about how you conduct yourself in a courtroom and before a judge, and you can be held in contempt of court, which can be like a sort of criminal penalty. I mean, you, you can spend time in jail for a contempt of court. So it doesn't, you really have to act out to be in that kind of situation. But 
it happens. You know, people start swearing at judges and the judge gives them warnings. And then, you know, next thing you know, you're spending a day or two in jail for contempt or whatever it is. Again, that's something that's never happened in, that's usually in the criminal context. I, I haven't seen anybody engage in that kind of stuff in, in a civil case I've been involved in, but it does happen. And certainly if I wanted to have that happen, I'd, I'd probably say that kind of stuff first. <laughs> well, well, those, the crazy videos, like I watch, I used to watch them on YouTube. You binge watch those like court fight videos or whatever. Yeah. There's one where a guy fought a judge, like the judge invited the no. guy to, you want to go in the hallway? He fought the lawyer. Yeah. What? Yeah. I would. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll I would, send it to you after this. It's in, it's incredible. I would buy the pay per view for that fight. As long yeah. as nobody gets hurt, there's an official gloves, head. I would pay for that fight. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're already in court too, so if it gets too out of hand, like you're, you can figure it out. Hey, that's that's not a bad point. Um, yep. Ancestry.com uh, sued uh, for using yearbook photos without people's permission. Um, would right. it use it in, in advertisements or just on their site? So it was in advertisements. That's the claim. Um, so this is, this gets back to the publicity rights issue. The people who are suing are saying like, like these are yearbook photos of me. It's, uh, it's clearly identifiable as being me. And I didn't give you permission to use my picture in your ads. And so this case is at the stage where Ancestry's filed a response and there'll be a couple more briefs that are submitted before the judge rules on it. But Ancestry is trying to say, you know, first of all, you guys already put these yearbook photos in the public domain and they're already out there. And so we're not using them for a commercial purpose beyond what you've already put out in the space. They're trying to say that, you know, these are yearbook photos that were already made public. And so we're just redistributing information that's already public. They're trying to say that there's no commercial value associated with their use of the yearbook photos because the product isn't a yearbook. It's, it's finding out information about your past. And so, you know, the amount, to the extent we even used your picture, it doesn't matter. It's a thorny situation for them for the reason that, these kinds of publicity rights cases historically, they're so easy to bring. They're not usually that complicated to establish. And like I mentioned, there's the, the sort of carrot on the stick of attorney's fees at the end if you bring them. And in this case, you've got a class of plaintiffs. There's so many people that have yearbook photos used that you're effectively multiplying whatever the images are across all of those people. And so the potential liability for ancestry is pretty big. Um, but I'm personally very interested in seeing how the court rules on this one, because if it's in favor of ancestry.com, that would sort of, that has the potential to arm businesses that are faced with similar lawsuits with better law to use in defense if ancestry's arguments carry the day. But it's, I think the real reason I posted that and like the takeaway for most businesses is just be careful about using a picture of anybody in your advertisement and putting it on your website is going to be treated as advertising. So it comes up a lot in like customer testimonials. Like let's say there's a review that you find somewhere online, like from a blogger or something or on somebody's Facebook. 
and you want to use that review on your website about your product, if you take that review and use that picture's photo or their full name and you don't have their permission, you have a potential publicity rights case on your hands. So it's, it's one of those things that seems so innocent, like this is somebody who already has their name online and, and love my product. Why can't I just showcase that? Right. You have to be careful about how and where you do it. Well, the interesting thing is, right, like if they, if they get got for it, let's say, uh, they, they lose whatever that case is, then in my eyes, they have to now, like the only company that could feasibly do something like that would be uh, a company that has everybody put in the photos themselves, like a Facebook or an Instagram, you know, one of these social platforms. So if I were them and there was no other way, because the photos are so essential for that mm -hmm. site and that product, partner with one of the social media apps because they have... Um, the rights to the photos if people click a box. Right, they, so the problem with that at first though is when you sign up for uh, Facebook or Instagram or something like that, it's not clear that you are giving a release of your license for Facebook to then share with every other business to use absolutely however they want. Right. And so I, I would wanna look back over Facebook's terms again. It's been a little while, but I, I doubt that when you sign up, you're saying Facebook can use your image uh, in partnership with any brand in the world for whatever purpose. So there are ways that a business could get, could comply with the requirements that you need to appropriately use someone's photo. You know, if somebody signs up, you can have in your terms of service, assuming you draft them in a way that's enforceable that, you know, by signing up and providing your name and picture, you agree that we can use it for X, Y, and Z purpose. And so that's pretty much like the standard way to use user generated content. If you're worried about, well, not if you're worried about it, to make sure that you don't get into a publicity rights kind of issue. Right. That ancestry.com is a tricky one too, because more than half the people on the site are dead. Right. right. So right. you can't really get their permission. Yeah. And these people were saying like, we're not even members of this site. And yet you're advertising that somebody can sign up to see my information. And the way that you're advertising that is through using my photo. So it does sound messed up when you put it like that. Right. I mean, there's, there's a compelling case to be made on their side. And I think that Ancestry's arguments so far are also, I mean, they're, they're not nothing. They're, they're well thought out. They're supported by as similar cases as, as you can get. And so it really will be an interesting one to see what happens in, in a month or so. Hmm. So this next one, I know <laughs> people are going to get a kick out of. Gamers sued EA for not disclosing why Madden is so difficult. Is there any, is there any rhyme or reason to that suit? Because it sounds... Yeah ridiculous and like they just lost a bad game it does it does sound crazy and i admit to using a little bit of a clickbaity title for that one but only because like i'm trying to summarize the issue in you know 10 words or whatever what they're suing about is the fact that uh madden and other ea games will sort of dynamically change the difficulty on you as you play and the argument is like you advertise realism in your games. That's, that's a big part of why 
people buy NHL and Madden is, it's not a perfect simulation, but there's a bit of, you know, if I play with this team that has higher ranking, they're going to perform better. Like, right. My entire FIFA team is made up of people with a certain points ranking that's higher than others. You should expect that they'll win and not just get smoked because the game has decided it's time for you to lose. That's like an extreme way of putting it. But, you know, you remember like back in original NBA Jam, if you're winning too much, like the game will suddenly become amazing and smoke you. Like the same with NFL Blitz. And so it's sort of the same thing here where they're saying like, you give me this team manager feature and you allow me to put people on my team with like a 91 ranking. And now in the middle of this game, I'm losing to players with like 70 ranking. This, this is not what I signed up for. And so the claim is like, this is, this is false advertising because you're, you're switching the rules on me. And I wouldn't have bought it if I known that if I had known that this kind of thing was going on. So that's, that's a big part of what that case is about. That's crazy. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I understand the frustration when it comes to, um, you know, like playing professionally and that being your career and then, you know, the different levels of it not being disclosed, but. Yeah. I think part of what they're trying to get at also is, you know, I haven't, I haven't played FIFA in ages, but I think there's some mechanism in the game where you can unlock different player cards and add them to a team. And at some point there becomes a microtransaction aspect to it where you can pay some amount of money for the opportunity to get better player cards or something like that. And the idea is now you're asking people to give up money because, or additional money in addition to the price of the game in hopes of being able to perform better in the game and that performance is not as promised. I agree that it's like, at first blush, it's like, dude, you bought a video game, like, and it's hard. How are you going to court over this? But there's, there's been a lot of legal attention to the concept of loot boxes in video games where people don't really know the odds of the reward they're going to get when they make like a $1 or even less transaction to try to get some, some perk. And so the FTC has been taking a look at loot boxes. They've, they've had workshops just about that concept in video games about, is this illegal gambling? How much more do we need to regulate this? And anytime the government takes a hard look at something, usually there's private lawsuits that follow sort of either, you know, drafting behind them or piggybacking or whatever. So there's probably some element of that here where the plaintiffs are thinking, all right, this kind of seems like, a variety of that issue where I, I'm not totally sure what I'm paying for and that's unfair. It's just in the context of, it looks like I'm just pissed that I'm not good at Madden, which is like certainly part of it, but hmm. yeah. To be fair, like there's more to it than that, but. Of course. Um, yeah. A topic that, that I am so glad that I remembered, even though it's like the biggest story in the last two weeks in the whole world, um trump is no longer a twitter user um yeah do you think that that is uh you know i know people like obviously you know i think like 70 million people voted for him so obviously 70 million people disagree with that choice but it's totally within twitter's legal rights to do that um but do you think now that you know like the fact that 
like Twitter has like dictators and crazy people on the platform that they um, should sort of keep that same energy across the board for, you know, some of these other people that are doing or have done similar things to what Trump did to get removed? Or how do you, how do you sort of look at that as from a legal standpoint of can other people make a case against Twitter for not doing things across the board? Yeah, I mean, you've hit on the exact issue that is at the front of all this discussion over Section 230 and are these are big tech companies taking advantage of the way that law is applied right now to, to have unfair censorship power. And it's, it's an enormous question. And the, the biggest issue is like, are they being consistent in how they regulate the content on their platform? And should we modify or revise the law to help make sure that things are done more equitably across the board? It's, it's the kind of thing that you could spend and people have spent you know, months debating, what should we do about this? Because right now, basically what Section 230 does is it's, some people feel very strongly that it's the law that allows the internet to operate. Because what it does is it says, if you have an interactive service, if you provide an interactive service online, you are not responsible, you're not potentially liable for content that's shared on that service that's created by somebody else. That's what you can argue allows us to have things like Wikipedia. If somebody goes on and edits a page to say something defamatory, Wikipedia should not and can't be liable for that under Section 230. They have that immunity. And if they didn't, then, I mean, the effects of that, there's so many to talk about, but it would make content moderation arguably impossible. And the liability exposure for somebody who's just hosting other people's created content would be out of control. So, it, I mean, at least that's my take on it. Section 230, the, the premise of it is a good thing. I don't think it should be totally repealed. I think revisions are appropriate. Um, but that's sort of the basis of it. And in, in addition to not being liable for allowing content to be up on the service platform, they're also not liable for deleting content. And that's why, to sort of go off on a side thing for a second, that's why when people come to me and say, my Instagram was disabled, can I sue Instagram? The answer is unfortunately right now, categorically no, because it's just up to them what is on the platform. And you know, there's, there's other reasons for that, for why you can't do that. The terms of service say they can disable you at any time. It's, but, like, uh, it's like a girlfriend and a boyfriend. You can't sue your partner for breaking up with you. <laughs> people have tried that. People have tried that a lot. Really? But, oh, yeah. Oh. Yes, people have sued their ex-boyfriends and girlfriends for you know, emotional distress and breaking up with them and all this kind of stuff. That, that goes back to the point of like anybody can file any lawsuit they want. They may, may not get very far, but... Thank God I'm in the clear there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the debate around how much power should these platforms have in terms of picking and choosing what stays up and what goes down, it's, it's such a complicated question. And I, I, I think that if you have a standard of what's acceptable on your platform, you should apply it equally. That's a huge task, though, when you talk about how many users are on a platform, 
how can you possibly police everything? Who is making these judgment calls as to what's okay and what's not? You know, the idea of banning a, a sitting president from Twitter is obviously a huge moment and it really puts puts into focus the kind of issues we're talking about when you talk about reforming Section 230 and all that. So I don't know where that's going to land, but it's certainly fascinating to watch. It's really crazy. It's like the more you think about how big that decision, and not just Twitter, every platform subsequently right, down right. It, including like Shopify. I don't even know who was using Shopify. I mean, maybe he was for his website, I don't know. Um, yeah. But, you know, just the way you, you just put it, like a sitting president banned from his means of communication with the public. Holy yeah. cow. And yeah, o- I mean, Obama was the first social media president, but even Obama, like he, you know, I, I know his iPhone didn't even have any apps. Like it, I don't even know if it had internet access on his phone. Right. He just had like, he had like the apps that uh, the iPhone comes with, like the help app, the calculator, and then like some games, I think, <laughs> you know, yeah. whereas Trump was, uh, was definitely a, a free, a free soul when it came to what was on his phone. Uh, yeah, that, that's for sure. I mean, the, <laughs> just the sheer volume of tweets was like, don't you have a country, like, don't you have other stuff to do? I, I was always just, uh, I don't know if impressed is the right word, but like, wow, this guy puts out a lot of tweets. Like, <laughs> yeah, they always, they said at the beginning of, of his presidency that he would do it from the toilet, but he, he yeah. that, that would mean that he was spending a lot of time <laughs> in the bathroom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it, that decision, especially from Twitter, it was a wake up call for a lot of people to think, to think about the issue of like, look at what these platforms can do. You can just be in a day completely done here on, on Twitter and other platforms and no matter who you are. So there's, I think, appropriately a lot of concern about, well, what would happen if a sort of slippery slope argument of what happens if these tech companies just decide they don't like an entire line of argument or an entire viewpoint and they just, suddenly they decide that that's not good for the platform. That's the kind of concern that you get, especially from the right side of the country, the right-leaning side of the country. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's just such a complicated issue. I can't claim to be the expert or predict what will happen. Right. Are you, are you familiar with what, like if, if somebody is a president, like let's use Obama as an example, um, are there certain levels of immunity that you just get from having been a president or once you're, once your, uh, your terms are done, you're the same as everybody else. Do you get any, any, any special benefits or can anybody sue you just like the rest? It's a good question. I don't want to say, I'm always like really reluctant to say what the answer is if I'm not totally sure. I, I know that of course, while you're, in office, you have immunity from being sued. But in terms of acts that you did while you were in office after your term ends, I, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, that would be wild if you had immunity for life from being president. Uh, yeah, I think that, that would there would be some bad incentives there for sure. 
but I, yeah, I'd, I'd want to look it up before I say yes or no, because I know people will call me out for it if I'm wrong. No, that's, that's crazy. Um, what else do we want to talk about here? Oh, this is interesting. Bumble, uh, Bumble paid out $22.5 million to settle a case about unclear subscription terms. So these, yeah. uh, Bumble, Tinder, Raya, all of these dating apps, right? They're very confusing to me in the sense of, uh, like if you go on, if you go on like a sports gambling app, right? Like a fan duel, um, and you put in money and you're like consistently going, there will be like notifications that come up to like keep you sane, like from not buying, spending too much. And, you know, there will be warnings. You can set limits and stuff like that. Um, yeah. with dating apps, none of that, like right. you got the boosts, uh, a buddy, uh, 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 we call them boosties. You got the boosties and then, you know, you've got your subscriptions and then you've got all your different things in here and there. I don't even yep. use most of them. I've never, even, I've never, I don't think I've ever been on Bumble, but, um, it's really crazy how, you know, little is disclosed. And then to see this. You know, I, I want to ask what the sort of context is here. Um, I think it has to do with uh, automatic renewals, but um, what what happened? Yeah, so the there's laws about when you offer somebody what's called an automatic renewal program, where somebody is automatically charged unless they take some affirmative step to cancel. It's like a classic subscription model. There are laws about what the customer needs to see before they submit their billing information. They need to see the terms of, uh, you know, when they're going to be charged, how much they're going to be charged, how they can cancel, uh, and there's different requirements based on the state that you're in or what state's law applies. But basically, you need to have the terms up front. You need to know when you can cancel by and how to do it, and so on. And in California, there's additional rules like when you sign up for a subscription, you need to receive an acknowledgement email that goes over all the terms again and shows you how to cancel. There needs to be a way for you to cancel online if you signed up online and so on. And it's a, a big area of litigation because a lot of brands, big and small, screw up the disclosure requirements and the acknowledgement and so on. And that's part of what happened here with Bumble was when you signed up for whatever their premium recurring automatically billed feature was, there weren't those disclosures at the time. There, you weren't told how to cancel. You weren't really told when you would be charged. And, and so that's, that was just ripe for this class action, which ended up settling for you know, a significant amount of money. But it's, it's the kind of thing that you know, Bumble is by no means alone here. These kinds of cases are filed all the time, especially in California. Um, California sees so many of these consumer protection class action lawsuits because it's such a consumer friendly state. Like California has some of the most consumer friendly, protective, you could say anti-business laws on the books and courts are, are much more consumer leaning in those cases than elsewhere in the country. So Bumble screwed this one up in, in a big public way, but tons and tons of, of businesses face these kinds of lawsuits just because they're 
you know, most of the time just not aware of what they need to do before somebody submits their payment information. That's crazy for companies as big as that, not to have people like yourself or, or anybody for that matter involved in, at least from a consulting perspective. Yeah. Is it's like, it, it's, I think about that a lot too. And that's a, and people say that like, how can a company this big and this sophisticated, it's not like Bumble came out, you know, two years ago, they've been around. How could they miss this? I think it's a combination of things. It's one, there's so much compliance work and, and legal compliance that needs to be done for a company that size that sometimes things just slip through the cracks. I think probably in this situation, you know, the marketing and app development team is not always running everything by legal before it goes live. And it was probably just one of those things that got pushed out without somebody who really needed to take time to put eyes on it, putting eyes on it. And it's possible that, you know, I'm totally speculating, but it's possible that Bumble's legal team was totally on top of these issues from a, uh, not consulting is not the right word, but it's possible they had training about this. Like, here's what we need to do when we roll out subscriptions and the, somebody just missed the memo when they're developing this and, and putting it out. It's totally possible that happened. Well, that dude's not working there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't happy to learn about those. He's over at Tinder now. <laughs> no, uh, I can only imagine the difficulties um that you would run across legally with a dating app yeah yeah there's actually specific laws that apply to dating apps that also add additional steps that you need to take when you're running subscription like paid premium services about them and i i i don't want to say exactly what the cause of that was like why did the legislature sit down and say you know what we really need to put dating app laws on the books. But I, I know that when the FTC does their like year in review scam report, where they talk about like how much money was lost to fraud this past year, what were the big areas of, uh, what were the big topics or, or context in which fraud happened, romance scams is always in the top three. So mm -hmm. it's possible it came from that. Yeah, like people, people get swindled out of money on just being catfished and like fake promises of meeting up and all this all the time. And it's wild to me. Like uh, I know somebody I, I went to school with who is by no means a dumb person was posting on Facebook about how he got defrauded out of, I think it was close to $10,000 basically just being catfished online. And it's like, this how is, this is happen, though? how do you give somebody money who you've never met? I know it's one of those things that's really hard for me to understand how you would be in that situation. But, and I also sort of questioned this guy's decision to post it on Facebook and tell everybody like, Hey, I got defrauded by a, by a catfish. But yeah, I mean, it happens all the time and it's not just like the kinds of people maybe you would envision being susceptible to this kind of thing. It's like widespread. It's beyond me. That's crazy. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen, I, I, I understand it while also not understanding it. Yeah, that's right. Me that, too. That's a tricky one. Yeah, you, you read the FTC's guides that they put out or, or, you know, how to stay safe online. And they'll say things like, don't send money to a romantic interest if you haven't, you know, met them. And it's like, yeah, 
<laughs> duh, right? Like, of, of course, don't do that. But it's still, you know, year after year, a, a huge issue. And don't send any money to those Nigerian princes trying to come right. to the States. All of them. <laughs> yeah, unless they sound legit, in which case, of course. <laughs> Invite them to your home. <laughs> yeah. Unless they say they have millions of dollars for you, in which case, of, of course. Yeah. Can't afford not to, yeah. Of course, of course. Um, that's pretty much everything. Where, where can people find you best? Uh, most active on Instagram at Robert Freund Law. I just joined Clubhouse a couple of days ago and I'm, hey. I'm trying, to, trying to spend more time on there. It's super addicting and like can become a, a total time suck, but it's fun. So Instagram's probably where I'm most active. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn and on my website and all that. Be and careful on Clubhouse. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of regurgitation. That's that for people sure. People think is new information. That's what happened That's to me. I spent the first week I was on there, 10 hours a day I spent on the app while I'm working, phones open. And then I got to like day three, four, five, and I was like, oh, everybody's just telling the same stories over and over again, and I'm learning nothing. So yeah. I I'm, I'm much more selective now with where I spend my time on Clubhouse. So I, I, that's the best advice I can, I can give in terms of app, uh, app time. Yeah, that makes total sense. I've seen that too, like, especially in the huge rooms that stay up for days at a time. It's just like every time you jump in, it's somebody talking about like how to figure out how to start your business. And it's like this, which is great, a, a course worthy topic that is worth learning about. But yeah, I feel like the huge rooms just sort of repeat the same five or six greatest hits. And then the smaller rooms are where you actually get. Yeah. Do it. A lot of, a lot of these people are, are entrepreneur one, one hit wonders when it comes to advice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's for sure. Um, awesome. All right. Thank you, brother. I'm sure we will, we will be back for your, your three Pete. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to do that. Hope we do. All right. All right. Perfect. See you guys next time. Yeah.